0: We give our guests a quick message from our sponsor. We've had the COVID virus and now we have the monkeypox virus. And we found out that a month or two before each of them, there were simulations of how they might be spread upon the world. What do our globalist masters have in store for us next? You can be sure there's something. But what can you do about it? The best thing you can do is to keep your immune system resistant, resilient, and clean. You can do that by going to zstacklife.com. Dr. Zelenko has developed a system a protocol supplement system that has saved thousands of patients that he treated with very few hospitalizations you can go to zstacklife.com and get the zstack protocol you can get the protocol for children and the detox formula if you go to zstacklife.com and use promo code cdm you can get a five percent discount for off all of the products so keep your immune system healthy as we wait for the next virus to come down the pike go to promo to go to zstacklife.com and use promo code CDM for a 5% discount. And now let's get to our guest.
1: Well, welcome to our globalist conversation, our global conversation in plain sight. Today, I am honored to have with us two esteemed and renowned doctors, each uh, experts in their own fields, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Harvey Rush. Dr. Peter McCullough um, is a cardiologist, internal medicine doctor, and Dr. Harvey Rush is an epidemiologist at, at the Yale Public School of Health and Medical School. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank so. you. So uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because about uh, over a decade ago, a very dear friend of mine, childhood, very post childhood Fred, had gotten her PhD late in life. She's up with Dana Farmer in uh, Boston, and she did it on hope, hope in the medical field. She had ovarian cancer patients, and it was uh, not too much research that was done on hope in medicine. But one of the things she found out is if, if you have a high, believe in a higher power, And you also have a plan of action with your doctors. You might be able to survive longer periods of time because it gives you some certainty. So today uh, I wanted to have you on because I want, I want to discuss with you, not only your reflections about what you've seen and what you have written down in the books we're going to talk about later in the show, but also about the wellness company that you have announced now on, you know, within the last couple of weeks. Peter, let's start with you. What exactly is the wellness company? Because I think it's going to give some people some hope because you know what we've had over almost three years now is uncertainty, contradictions, arguments,
2: and now we have to get people back on track about wellness.
1: Well, thanks for having me
2: on the program. You know, I think uh, to to really put an exclamation point on that, people have lost their trust. Well, oh, they've mm-hmm. over the last three years now, Uh, You know, we've had the biggest medical crisis of our lifetimes and hospitals, health systems and clinics, they've had no care plan for patients, none. Patients, uh, you know, one after another became sick. Some were very high risk. Uh, They were were either denied treatment or received very little treatment, but there was no care plan. There was no follow-up. Many of them went to the pharmacy. They had their prescriptions, you know, not honored medicines weren't distributed. So the wellness company is an answer. It's a uh, it's a national answer for the United States. Uh, also serve Canada. Uh, this is a, a vertically integrated company uh, that will feature telemedicine, patient education, health and wellness, nutraceuticals, pharmacies, be able to uh, get these uh, medicines, prescription medicines to the patients in a timely manner. So it's a very exciting time now to bring hope back to uh, North America,
1: uh, Harvey. When I know that when you testified and when you had these um, teleconferences with people in Connecticut, and I've watched some of uh, some of them, you were trying to answer questions that people had. Do you think? And and I know that you've taken the, the in Connecticut, people have gotten into Governor Lamont's wife's. Uh, how do I say this, conflicts of interest, possibly. Um, Do you think that that this is going to help people to understand that there are doctors out there? Because I think that a lot of times people think, oh, I don't know who to trust.
3: Well, I think this is going to be very effective in that. Over the last two and a half years, I've received thousands of emails from patients desperately trying to get treatment for COVID. And I don't do clinical practice myself but I have uh, been emailing with 250 or so clinicians across the US and the world for that matter, who do treat COVID patients and have been treating COVID patients. And so I've referred them to all the practitioners where I could find them in their local areas as best I could, or to telemedicine groups that have been treating COVID. And all of these people have just been quietly treating their COVID patients with medications that work and, and basically saved their lives. And that's the, what we are going to continue doing, but we are going to be much larger scale, that the doctors involved in this know that these medications work. They know that there's been major attempts to suppress their ability to use them. They, the one, Some of them have been forced to sell their practices to, to medical groups. Those medical groups turn around and say, ''Okay, but you can't treat COVID patients. You can't use the medications you've been using for the last two years.'' and so on and that is what we are not going to tolerate we as doctors know from our experience what works and what doesn't we have all the evidence from patient from papers that are are published that we review we understand the 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 medical evidence and we use that evidence to come up with the best treatment plans for our patients and and that's the whole point of of this is for doctors to be able to be free use their experience use their the best knowledge and treat their patients in an honorable and ethical fashion that doctors are now completely suppressed from being able to do. The doctors are afraid out there in the real world to try to treat their patients with things they're afraid they're gonna lose their licensure, they're afraid they're gonna lose the, their specialty uh, uh, status, the specialization status and they can't take those risks for themselves and their families so they're mute they they at best they can quietly treat patients and hope that the patients or somebody else doesn't find out about them and report them to the the licensing bodies we are going to surmount that we already have started and that is the whole point of, uh, of the the wellness company is to give doctors the ability to treat patients the patients the ability to get the best care possible and under a telemedicine framework where it's face to face, and there's real interactions, and it's cost effective, and uh, you know, and, and makes this a very viable practical solution for everyone.
1: Okay, so so we have to talk about this because uh, there was a demonstration We all know that, that a couple of months ago there was a bill that was uh, sitting on California Governor Newsom's desk, and then uh, there was a demonstration outside in in uh, California against this bill on last Friday, just two days ago. And then on Friday, he signed it. Okay. And that bill basically says that uh, if you're a doctor who doesn't follow the narrative of the Fauci's of the world and the FDA, that in fact, you could lose your license. And we know already that there are many doctors in California because it's a very active medical state board out there who's gone after doctors who have written numerous uh, medical exemptions. So, you guys are not politicians, but unfortunately, everybody's had to be a little bit more political in the last three years. So we've all kind of put on our long pants, either as journalists or also as doctors and nurses and firemen and policemen. How do we handle something like this? Because you guys are a solution to what everybody to the hell everybody's gone through for, the, for almost three years now. At the same time, if you take a look at what Newsom just did on Friday night. We know that the WHO is moving into the VAX passports, whether anybody wants to admit that or not. That digital passport is in the works. We now know that in Germany, people are being tested every day at corporations. So the testing apparatus is in motion in some countries. We were just talking before we came on camera about how hydroxychloroquine used to be over-the-counter in France, and then in 2019, you had to get a prescription. So we have forces working against it. How do we all survive this when you guys come up with an answer?
2: Yeah, I'll take that. I I think the only court that's open is the court of public opinion. We should take these public utterances very seriously. When Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum, three months after the COVID-19 pandemic started, published the book, COVID-19 and the Great Reset, he said this is a narrow window of opportunity to create a new world order, and we're seeing it happen. I think we should follow very carefully who goes to these Davos meetings and meets with the World Economic Forum. California AB uh, 2098, which is now law, is a step towards medical totalitarianism. Right. And what we know about this, now this is a complaint-driven system. Any person can uh, submit an anonymous complaint and a doctor could be accused of spreading COVID misinformation without any evidence, with any, without any sets of definitions, any standards. You know, COVID-19 is a complicated illness. Patients are complicated. The treatments are complicated. And I can tell you, at this point in time, I know how doctors are going to react. They are going to recoil. They are categorically not going to deal with COVID. They're going to do everything they can to minimize the risk. And you know who's going to suffer are the patients.
1: So this, I mean, uh, Harvey, in Connecticut where you are, they, they passed at the state legislature, they said no religious exemptions.
3: Well, that's a complicated question. Um, the religious exemptions apply through high school uh, and um, it, it's not clear whether it includes the COVID vaccines since they're not fully approved. And it does not apply in at the college level and doesn't apply as far as I understand, and doesn't apply uh, at an employer level. The other forces are, this is a, a, a give and take and it's all gonna go to the courts and it should have been moot by now for two reasons. Number one, that the CDC on August 11th already admitted that the vaccines are a public health failure. And secondly, the president admitted that the pandemic is over. And uh, under those circumstances, there's no rationale whatsoever for any government interest, any corporate interest, any interest at all to force vaccination on anyone. If the person wants to take a vaccine, that's their medical choice for their own treatment. But there's no grounds whatsoever to, to compel vaccination out. There's no state grounds, there's no employer grounds. And so w- whether anybody gives up their power to deal with this is a totally separate question. What we've learned is over the last three years, the country has been lawless that there have been plenty of laws that would establish principles and rights of individuals, and they've been totally trampled by the administrative state. And the only way that that gets undone is by pushing back in court. And part of the problem has been that the courts have shirked their responsibilities to deal with the actual underlying questions and looked at trivial superficial questions of did this public health administrator break the law, even if he was completely wrong on the science, did he break the law? And, and things like that but that is changing and and it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort but we are making a lot of headwind, head, head, headway into changing this usurpation and abuse of, of our fundamental rights.
1: How do we how do we get more doctors to stand up? Uh, because a, a dear friend of mine Kelly O'Mara, is a journalist took on Ritland Uh, Decades ago, uh, all the SSRIs. And when COVID broke, I went to her and I said, Kelly, what's different now than before? She said most of the doctors didn't speak up about the SSRIs uh, that were being handed out like candies. And she said to me, we need to have more doctors speak out. I mean, and and you guys have been brilliant and you've been courageous, and I, I commend you and I commend all the doctors that are out there because you're really taking the bricks for your industry. But how do we get? How do we open that space? so that we're able to get more doctors worldwide to take this on? And what is it that the public can do to help you guys get more courageous and more outspoken?
2: I think we need to have Bethesda conferences. In cardiology, we have them. This is when there's a problem. We have academia, private practice, uh, CDC, NIH, FDA, industry. We set agendas, we write up our proceedings. We actually have to come together All the medical colleges need to come together, American College of Physicians, family practice, obstetrics, pediatrics. Uh, We need to actually have review of data on the treatment of COVID-19, vaccine safety and efficacy. I talked to young medical students. There are no grand rounds on the topic. Uh, Students have actually never had a review of what's going on in COVID-19. And we have to start at that level. Uh, how could they not?
1: How could they not know,
2: Peter? How they, they? They, 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 I asked them. They simply don't know. I asked them, "Have you had grand rounds on this?" No. They just, they don't know. They are being held intentionally in the dark. And uh, yeah, I can tell you, I was prior to COVID. I was a very, very frequent lecturer around the entire world, invited lecture, sometimes an endowed lecture. I give it a named lecture at a university. There have been no lectures on COVID nineteen. None.
1: When you say none for you or none, they're not doing it in the medical schools?
2: I pay attention to the uh, grand round schedules that come out. It's simply not being covered. And at this point in time, there seems to be a blind spot. And any advancement, you know, remember, none of the medical schools have advanced the protocols for inpatient treatment beyond the NIH very base nihilistic protocol. None of them. There's no Mayo protocol. There's no Harvard protocol. There's no bravado. There's no comparative statistics. On how and the hospital outcomes, this is the first time in medical history, hospitals with a big book of business are not evaluating their own data. This is this is frightening.
1: Is that the same in Yale too, Harvey?
3: Well, we actually have had some seminars and grand rounds on COVID, but they're all pro message. it's it's all like just feeding the propaganda machine. I think I agree with Dr. McCullough, but the problem is the amount of conflicted people, people with conflicts of interest who would be pulled into that and how to basically keep them from propagandizing and and corrupting even those kinds of conferences. Basically, what academic medicine has has allowed itself to happen is to be completely corrupted by pharma money. So the so-called experts in everything are all paid on pharma grants or conduct pharma trials or speak for pharma products and go around the world making money for themselves. On, on the pharma budget and for, for pharma to spend five or ten billion dollars a year as a whole on you know a dozen experts at every universe, every medical university around the world is just part of their advertising budget and it's not even that big of a part of their advertising budget and that's how they corrupt the entire landscape of medical research. They pay off the editors of journals there's now been revealed a whole editor reviewer, Network corrupt network uh, of publishing and th- uh, promoting fake papers throughout the medical literature, of which Retraction Watch has already identified 500 in their papers, and they're saying there's going to be more retracted in the next month. That this is a large scale scam being perpetrated on the medical community by a pharma industry that manipulates everything through astronomical amounts of money. And so if we are going to have academic conferences and and review conferences and, and expertise conferences, we first have to remove the people who have these conflicts of interest, that the people cannot be ones who their allegiance is to their income and not to the science. That is the big problem now.
1: Well, then we want the names because our job as journalists is to expose these people. That's I mean, I, I'm not going to leave that up to the doctors. You guys can barely survive to take to, to take care of, you know, people who are sick and people who want to get well. Our job as investigative journalists is to name names and expose them. So, I mean, I, I welcome that. Let's talk. Let's talk now about, I guess, you know, your wellness company. um I mean you' you're I think what I think what I'm excited about, okay, is not just that it gives it ho- gives people hope, but also that it's led by gentlemen like you who have ethics because what we're seeing is this enormous space of a lack of ethics as as you just talked about the pharmaceutical companies, as we know about the journals, as we know about people who are afraid to come forward because they're afraid the medical boards are going to come after them like cockroaches. So, Tell us the the I guess the, the 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 big vision for this. if you if if you had no obstacles, Peter, what would this look like? And how would it be duplicated?
2: yeah I, I, I think that you know telemedicine certainly has uh, its role, but we still you know have a great need for the face to face encounter, and there are needs for you know surgical procedures, hospitals uh, and elsewhere. Uh, but I agree with Dr. Risch that the wide scale corruption at the top, there has to could be a complete house cleaning and accountability uh, from the very top. And uh, a company like the Wellness Company can basically be a fresh start and uh, and, and can uh, you know be patient, truly patient centric without any interference from uh, the regulatory agencies or or what we call the biopharmaceutical complex. It's more than big pharma because it involves uh, the regulatory agencies, in vitro diagnostic companies, uh, and it involves others that really are trying to drive an external uh, agenda. But this broad network at some point in time may include hospitals, clinics, uh, and it's led by uh, e-commerce juggernaut uh, Foster Colson out of Canada who really uh, exemplifies the ideals of of what a, a a businessman, a real hero can do. You know, one of the shocking things, Christine, is you know where are the billionaires who are so mm-hmm. self secure speaking out about what's going on? All of them are silent. All of them are fearful and afraid of losing something.
1: Well, that's, that's because they've got a
2: stock portfolio.
1: Come on, they, they, they're they're making you know it's not just the former people, the people on the inside, the people who are benefiting, being paid off, and being bribed. Thank you very much. But it's also the people. Who are the what I call the monetary enablers, the stocks, the portfolios? All right. So they. It, it, every time I hear that somebody has done something, COVID, I, you know, I've I've just gotten to the point I say, so how much money were you paid? How much money did you make?
3: Well, you have Steve Kirsch, who's actually a billionaire who's been on on our side more or less. You mm-hmm. know, basically pushing down everything, trying to discover and open up every fact make it plain as day so that the the corruption is apparent.
1: He has, but he stands alone in a lot of ways. i mean that's that's i mean mean, more and more people are whispering about it uh and that's why i like your model if they figure out that they can make money off of it maybe some of these greedy people will step up to the plate and say oh these guys are really serious about it maybe we can make some money off of this but you can't have them making money off the pharma on the bad side and then making money off of here if you don't have ethics in the room it's not going to work it's going to wash each other out and then you're going to have some creative lawyers who are going to come after you guys because they're going to say you need to be regulated. So how do you, how do, how does this work? I mean, first of all, if I if I want to sign up for the wellness company, how do I do
2: that? Well, you can go online and uh, enroll, and
3: uh, you know what's are, the name of the site, Peter? Um, the TWC Twc.health. Thank you.
1: TWC health. Okay, so I go on there and and I sign up, and then what happens next?
2: Well, you can enroll in uh, you know a variety of different programs. Many people just want to get a doctor. Uh, that you know they have some acute issue they want to be addressed, uh, and then you know take a look at the, uh, the the verticals. Some are interested in you know we have a wonderful um, library the, the company itself has. Uh, you know its own book out, which is basically biographicals on the leaders of the company and philosophy, uh, and uh, this is offerings has a store. Uh, nutraceuticals and supplements, and uh, it's it's the website has basically been open now for a few days, and it's going to build out and really have some tremendous uh, capacities. But the the unique thing about this is it's already starting with scale, and so many of the other uh, types of operations. And there have been really commendable heroes throughout the pandemic. They never had this type of scale to start with.
1: All right, and the name the name of the book is "The Next Wave is Brave." Is that is that the name of the book? Tell me, Harvey. Tell me about this book because it's a compilation of different doctors and presenting their points of view.
3: As well, I understand, yes. Yeah, so, I, the the book is a mix of how each of us got to this point, and what our philosophies are, why the medical world is unsatisfactory, and what we want to do about it, and. I think that encapsulates all of us, that we all came together before the wellness company. We've all known each other, worked with each other, emailed with each other and so on, because we've all been outspoken in our various ways and expertises about things about COVID that weren't right in the the mainstream environment. And when Foster Coulson came along with the idea of making this into an an actual medical uh, telemedicine, telehealth, organization and company, we thought it was a, a brilliant idea. My understanding is that it originated with Dr. Zelenko in the first place, who was working with Foster Coulson on this. And it was, so it was Zev's vision of having an unfettered, free, independent medical care system, basically, as I put it, reinventing the obvious, that this is the way medicine was supposed to be. It was when I was a child, and for, as far as I can tell, and even when I was in medical school, I remember my, my students, my classmates and I thinking, we're not gonna take any pharma freebies, you know, the books, the stethoscope, the, the so on. And we succumbed then thinking we would somehow be independent. And that was just nothing at that time compared to where pharma has gone with regard to the corruption of the, the medical space. So the book is talking about our personal experiences and our kind of intellectual experiences over the last few years and how, why and how we think that, that this company is going to allow the the change for the better so that we can actually deliver on the medical care that we were trained to think was the right way to, to deliver medicine.
1: Did you, did you gentlemen ever think when you were in medical school, or let's go back maybe 10 years ago, did you ever think that you would be at this point in time professionally fighting for truth and information and discussion, and dialogue. I mean, did you did did it ever cross your minds that it, that it, your profession was heading that way? Because I know that I've been in my profession of media for forty years, and I never thought we'd get to where we are today. Because I'm old enough to remember Phil Donahue. And his show is all about dissent about vaccinations a lot of times. All right. So, you know, and Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes back in the 70s. So I, I'm beginning to think, you know, how did we all get to this point? The media,
2: the doctors. Yeah, I never expected it. Both Dr. Rich and myself uh, testified, actually, at two out of the four historic U.S. Senate testimonies on the treatment of COVID-19. I never thought I would be at that point in my life. And when I gave my speech on the Lincoln Memorial on January 23rd, 2022, as a medical doctor, I was the one advocating for civil liberties. In a a free and, and liberal democracy, it takes a doctor to advocate for personal autonomy, for the respect for self, for um, the, the linkage between medical freedom and social and economic freedoms. Uh, you know, We've come very rapidly. We've blown through uh, very, very important cornerstones of medical ethics, the Declaration of Helsinki for informed consent, the Nuremberg Code regarding uh, the use of investigational products and that no one should receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal. All of these have been blown through and people feel like their lives are tethered to receiving a vaccine that they don't want, that they know they could lose their life. And at the same time, people uh, don't feel they can trust their physicians largely because the physicians denial of early treatment and now advocacy for these disastrous vaccines.
3: That's right. I think that, uh, you know, I'm a basic scientist. I, I do epidemiologic research on the etiology of cancer. And and I've certainly had my, you know, stellar papers here and there. and. Um, I thought I would just be a typical scientist, and then somehow um, I was involved in the state of Connecticut, the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, which created a committee to help the uh, governor reopen the state after the lockdown, and we all were assigned different tasks, and mine was to look at early outpatient treatment, and I review the literature as science just like I do any science, and so when I wrote up an essay saying, well, here's the studies that are out there, and this is the scientific understanding, and this is no big deal, there's no controversy here. And then all the blowback that I got and the absurd blowback, at first I thought, well, the media is talking about hospital disease and I'm talking about outpatients, are they being sloppy, what's the story? And then when that became systematic, I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is a program of suppression to to deny the validity of this evidence. And I'm not gonna say that, I'm not gonna lie about nature, it's just not in me. To say that scientific research says one thing, and I'm going to say the opposite, I'm going to fudge it and cherry pick and so on—that is not my scientific nature. There'd be no point of me being a scientist and taking the low salary that I've had for forty years if I was just going to pander to whoever wanted to pay me. So uh, I just took, stood up for what the science said, and and that kind of propelled me into this strange world of of being, you know, the this this outspoken scientist that I never expected to be. You know,
1: as, as an equestrian, I was shocked to see uh, one of my, I worked, I've worked for four networks. One of them was CNN. I was the political director there a zillion years ago. And when I saw CNN say that ivermectin was a horse treatment, yes, it is. But it was also, you know, it's been very, very successful uh, for people in Africa to, to suffering river blindness. To prevent it. and i and I thought it was extraordinary um at that point in time that that they would just flat out lie. I, th- I think that we've lost we've lost Peter, but he'll come back.'ll we'll we bring him in. Uh, harvey, let me let me ask you about when when you have spoken out, because I know you did it in Connecticut, you did it on Capitol Hill as well. Did you ever get to the point where you have people come to you privately and say, you're doing the right thing, but I'm just not there yet.
3: Many, thousands, um, colleagues, students, um, the people across the spectrum, both political parties, um, email me, uh, there's lots and lots of people out there who are afraid, who know what the reality is, who've seen the evidence themselves, who've looked through, looked at the studies, who sit there and evaluate the studies. You know, one of the interesting things about this is, uh, so I've been teaching uh, PhD and, and MPH students for 40 years in epidemiology. And I tell them, the first thing you do when you read a study is don't believe the authors. What you need to do is to read the study, pay attention to the details, figure out what the, what's valid and invalid about the study, try to find the faults. And if you can't find faults that cripple the study, then you can begin to entertain the results. And when you've figured out what the results say, draw your own conclusions. And if those conclusions happen to be the same as the author's conclusions, well, fine. But your conclusions are your validity, not the author's statements. And somehow we've seen this corruption of authors being forced to make all sorts of bizarre statements about their results that that are not the actual results of studies. And the media copies those statements from the author, the end of the abstract, as if that's the definitive result of the study, and it just perverted the whole medical landscape. People see this all the time, my colleagues, you know, I can see this all the time. And so they write to me saying, this study shows the exact opposite of what the media says it, it shows, and, and so on. And uh, there's been so so much we, basically, we've been Samizdat. We've been an underground intellectual uh, company that has begun to break through into public understanding that there are alternative viewpoints of experts, people who are in these fields, who know this material backwards and forwards. It's their professional expertises who are unbiased and uncorrupted and expressing their viewpoints. And those are the ones that need... Um, uh, understanding and, and, and thinking about. And you have the other thing that I'll say about this is the censorship and suppression is a tool of the weak. If you have an argument Absolutely. to push back, you use your argument. When you don't have an argument, all you can do is censor. And so the fact that you see so much censorship means that the, the, the side that's pushing the censorship are liars. That's the bottom line. That if they could argue the point, they would be arguing it. And since they're not arguing it, they're lying, they're censoring.
1: Well, also people have to understand is that America was the first country in the world and we're still the only one. New Zealand did it, but then they decided not to do it, to put pharmaceutical advertisements on television back in the 1980s. And then when the internet was born in the last 20 years, it became the new wild west of platforms for pharmaceuticals. So when people people talk about being censored, what they're missing is this is a business model. This is tech, pharma. And tech is, is doing the censoring because they're being paid to do it, because they're working with the government, you know, cock, as I call them, the, cock, the, the cabal cockroaches, um, you know, who are basically the one that sell the narrative because people are making money off of this. I mean, the money angle to this is astronomical, even to the point of Fauci offering hospitals money to make the mandates for the staff at the hospitals. I mean, that, sh- that should be very scary for people. And that 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 full story hasn't fully come out, but it will. It will eventually in terms of uh, taking taxpayers' money and telling these, these major hospitals, you know, mandate your vaccinations for the staff. Now, it didn't apply to some doctors because some doctors who, who, who get privileges to work at the hospitals. But in terms of the staff, it really, it, I mean, it has happened. And that's that, that's that's our money as taxpayers. Now, let me ask you guys this because I think it's really important, and I like the the, the tone of this conversation because it's reflective. What has surprised you the most, and in, in in terms of the disappointment in your profession, Peter?
2: I think it's what I call the oblivion. There just was an oblivion. To, to early treatment. And uh, we outlined it in our book. I wrote with John Lee, Courage to Face COVID-19. And, and, and the oblivion, I think, started out initially as fear. I remember it being on, I was on a task force for a major health system, the biggest one in Texas, for COVID-19. And within a week or two, I asked the question, are we going to start to treat this illness? Otherwise, people are going to pour in and be hospitalized and, and die. And there was just no response. And then as the data started to come out, there just was an oblivion. There, there was an, an obliviousness to this, that, that, that even though there were advancements being made, there was no recognition of it. Uh, th- there was no monthly review by any of the agencies regarding how things were advancing, both inpatient and outpatient. Uh, there, were no, um, there were no public seminars. You, you know, we, we focus on our governmental agencies. What about the hospitals? the health systems, the medical schools, you know, they had no public seminars helping Americans with a care plan. What should they do if they get COVID-19? American- okay, so, so, so is it, I mean, do
1: you, too, I mean, Harvey, you've been published, what, 350 peer reviewed? And and Peter, oh, you I have what, 800? I mean, the numbers are high. You, so you guys are scholars within your own field and, and, and you look at the review of this, you analyze it. Is it because the doctors don't, Aren't like you in terms of being published, and the people running the hospitals are now have MBAs. You
2: no, know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't ascribe it to that off the bat. There certainly are, um, you know, people who have hundreds of publications out there, uh, but I can tell you, none of them have ever called me. Now, I've never gotten a phone call from a chief of medicine saying, you know, it, it, you know, I want to talk to you about treatment of COVID nineteen or vaccine safety or efficacy. I'll never forget, uh, I was um, the named lecturer at an Ivy League school in the very early spring of 2021, as I was at another Ivy League school a couple years earlier. And I made all the arrangements. I did my slides, contracting, commun- uh, continuing medical education. And, 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 you know, the title of my topic was early treatment of COVID-19. And I got a call the night before the lecture, panic call saying, we, we can't have you give this lecture. I said, it's, it's all approved. I've gone through all the vetting process. They said, no, uh, our entire infectious disease department went to the chairman of medicine and said, we cannot have Dr. McCullough deliver this lecture. So the doctors are terrified of open dialogue on early treatment of COVID-19 and vaccine safety and efficacy. They're terrified of the dialogue. And there has been no dialogue at any level now on these pivotal issues, none. And I, I think there's a grip of fear. There is a cognitive dissonance, and oblivion. It's all rolling together. Some people use the term mass formation, that the doctors are in some type of trance at this point in time. But it is clear, there are no open channels of communication broadly now on discussing these topics. So my 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 first, the
1: first thought that comes to my mind is how, how much, was the grant given to that school to shut their hospital to shut that down. Right. Okay. Well, I, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I've gotten to be like a broken record. I don't care if you're a church or theater, a school, a university, how much money did you get from Fauci? How much, the two, you know, there's $2 trillion that was spent to roll out here, just here in the United States. The Gates foundation is paying, Media overseas. I can tell you that, that there are there are African entities in the media that have received money from the Gates Foundation. That's not the only one. There's Soros is paying money to some of these places. Uh, the Trust Initiative. Uh, the, it's a conglomeration of Google and the and Twitter and some of these corporations with Reuters and BBC. So there is a concerted effort to shut this down. And it's not just Klaus uh, Schwab. It's to capture not just the regulatory FDA CDC the the equivalent to in Australia or the EU it's it's basically because they want to control.
2: Christine there's a great example of that and it's in our book but you can see it on videos. Um uh Dr. Andrew Hill at in Liverpool was on a recorded conversation with Tess Lowry a consultant to the WHO and uh they were discussing the meta-analysis on ivermectin, and mm-hmm. and Hill basically conceded that Unitaid had interceded with a 40 million pound donation to his medical school, and that Unitaid had influence over the conclusions of the paper. And you know, a major funder of Unitaid is the Gates Foundation. It's all there in the open. So your point of who made a phone call to that Ivy League school to shut down Peter McCullough that could have been the same phone call or same groups of people who made a phone call to have my uh, university health system sue me personally, which they are doing now, or uh, or calling Elsevier and retracting one of my fully p- published papers. Uh, there is widespread corruption, widespread injury occurring to those who are trying to bring America and the world the truth. So what is it that we that the public needs
1: to do to <laughs> stay alive? and support, you know, men and women in your field who are courageous and speaking out. Because I think, you know, it can't just be the doctors on the ski slopes. This has to be a concerted effort of people. How do we, how do people publicly, I mean, first of all, they have to buy your book. Okay, so let's, Peter, let's start with your book that you've written, hold that up. All right, let's talk about that book. We can't see it, okay. The Courage to Face COVID-19. Tell us a little bit about that book.
2: Uh, you know, I took a year to write this. Uh, the primary uh, author is John Leake. He's already a true crime best-selling author. Spent most of his time in Europe. Came back to work with me over a year. This is such a complex, re- you know, mind-blowing reality, Christine, that we we think just giving a historical timeline uh, and just giving another um, iteration of a fact pattern is not good enough. It actually has to be written as a a true story, and we wrote it as a story. There's real characters in it, the chapters are short, and it is the story of the intentional suppression of early treatment, which is a crime. And the two crimes committed are fraud and mass negligent homicide, since patients' lives were lost. And we have chapters on all the major players, Dr. Harvey Risch, Dr. Didier Rial, Dr. Vladimir Solenko. Uh, John Leake took the time to carefully interview these people. Uh, it has every single twist and turn of the involvement of the White House, the U.S. Senate, the historic testimony, what happened. And it's a page turner. People can read it in about two and a half hours. People call it a gateway book because it's the only book in COVID right now, A, written by a best-selling author who's a full time author and B, written as a story. So it's actually understandable by the late person.
1: And Harvey, let's talk. Let's talk about the uh, the next wave is brave.
3: Well, I I think that we've covered some of of that, that uh, this is our monument, our proposal, our plan, moving forward to bring people out of medical tyranny, that you have to remember that the Nazi movement in Germany started with the corruption of medicine and public health, that it used the same kind of uh, uh, emergency, pathological emergency propaganda to corrupt the medical care uh, establishment, that doctors were the the first ones to be on board and and they were the tool of the state, and that's what's happened now in the United States. The doctors have been the tool of the state and its nefarious partners in in pharma and all the corrupted agencies and and so on, to and the World Economic Forum as part of this and and Gates and, and a few others, to to basically control, to dominate these kinds of choices for people, no matter how bad they end up in in terms of their health needs and and requirements. And so our way of fighting back is people have to do two things. The first thing is they have to vote these scoundrels out of office, that everyone of both parties who has not stood up and, and, and has not just taken that pharma money for their PAC money and not said anything, Those people need to be thrown out of office in federal government, in state government, in local government. The the infiltration of pharma money into public office is immense and it needs to be overturned. People need to be vetted. The people who run for office need to be vetted. And we need to throw out the ones who are still acting on pharma interest, not on our personal human public interest. That's the first thing. The second thing is people need medical care and, and we, they need, you know, unfettered and independent and available medical care. And that's what we're seeking to bring now in telemedicine. And eventually, as our company succeeds, we plan to have brick and mortar kin- clinics and eventually hospital and, and medical school if, if we can succeed in that frame.
1: What were your reactions to, Peter, to the uh, story coming out of Israel of the suppression of the Minister of Health's report about the adverse effects? I mean, many of us sat back and were wondering, you know, what is going on in Israel? Thank you very much with the history of the Holocaust. Why are these people stepping up and take why are they making people get, you know, the second booster? What was your reaction to that when that surfaced? And, and for the audience who doesn't know this, uh, this is a story that broke within the last month and the uh, Minister of Health knew about the adverse effects, but withheld that from the publication. And there was a conversation among the colleagues of how do we deal with this if this becomes public?
2: You know, the, 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 this, by the way, is going to happen at every health ministry, every public health agency. It'll be at the United States CDC as well and the FDA. The conversations that they're having is that they are seeing atrocities with respect to safety. And they believe that it's uh, the the better choice to withhold information on safety in order to keep vaccine hesitancy at a low. So they view vaccine hesitancy as the the real um, goal. So mm-hmm. that's built on an assumption that the vaccines are safe and effective. So remember, that assumption has been carried through all the other vaccines. The vaccines move through their development, They have a different type of uh, regulatory standards, and there's just a belief system that vaccines are safe and effective, and it's built on that belief system. But now for uh, you know, brand new sets of vaccines that are unproven, new mechanisms of action, uh, and just you know just a torrent, of safety information. There's over a thousand peer-reviewed papers on how dangerous these vaccines are and the regulatory agencies and the warnings on blood clots, heart damage, neurologic damage. Uh, So now we have this breaking story about Israeli authorities, you know, suppressing information in this kind of better part of valor for public health interest. No, the regulatory agency's first concern is safety. First concern. And this type of paternalistic thinking uh, has crept in. And boy, it crept into Nazi Germany as well. This idea of, you know, this is better for the public. This is better all. They're making a decision that's better off for the population at large. Now, Israel's almost exhausted this. The average Israeli has taken four shots. Israeli citizens, both um, uh, Jews and non-Jews, Arabs, uh, you know, substantial populations. Uh, Palestinian territories have not, uh, surrounding Arab countries have not. And the epidemic curves are very different of these you know, geographically closely related peoples, uh, uh, Lebanon and Jordan, for instance, had no large Omicron wave uh, because they, it, you know, the Omicron wave is largely a product of mass vaccination. Now, uh, one can go to Israel; no vaccine is needed. They've dropped everything. Reports we have is only two percent of Israelis are continuing on with any type of booster.
1: So, Harvey, what's your reaction to the fact that we know it's not just anecdotal. We know that at least at CBM Media, Todd Wood and I, my colleague, have been uh, interviewing the vaccine since early 2021, put them on camera about halfway through 2021 and released them in August, um, which is on our site, but uh, across our network. But what we learned is that the FDA, NIH, NIAID, the White House, the CDC have all been informed by vax injured about the neurological and the vascular, even though that they the, the, the uh, up until June, well they, they haven't re- officially recognized this, but we do know that even Dr. Paul Marks at the FDA has privately told vax injured, I official I acknowledge your injuries, but I cannot officially acknowledge it because if they did, it would create that vax hesitancy out there. And Peter, I agree with you that that is the overall goal. Keep the VAX hesitancy out there. And so hence, they're even suppressing vascular and neurological injuries to date.
3: Well, I think there's always been a problem that doctors really don't know how to deal with adverse uh, events that occur from the treatments that go wrong. Not, you know, medicine is imperfect. One does the best one can. Rarely some things don't work. And doctors have to be prepared to go to bat and fix what didn't work as best they can or to refer to a specialist for that purpose instead of denying that the problem is there at all. And given that there are no or have been no uh, methods for dealing with all this vaccine damage and adverse events and so on, the doctors don't know how to deal with the problems and how to fix them. So your average doc in the population is, has to be in denial because if they weren't, then there would be no way to fix all the damage that, that they know has been occurring. I think the problem is more fundamental to public health. And I, I analogize by saying, if you were a bridge designer and you designed a bridge over a river and one car out of a thousand fell into the river day in, day out, you know, would that bridge be there? Would you be, you know, would you be prosecuted or would that just be an accepted social standard of that's the way bridges are? And the answer to that is if you're being chased by a hurricane and you've got a 50% chance of, of drowning from a hurricane, you're going to go over that bridge no matter what its, it's, it's hazards are. Whereas if you're just taking a, a, a stroll, a day trip you know, to the mountains, are you going to go over that bridge if it has such a risk? Well, that's a different question. And that's what we've been facing, that the vaccines for many people have been safe as far as we know up to this point. But that's not nearly universal. There has been a substantial risk of all of the adverse events and mortality that we've seen, and the question is, what are the risks that people are facing by not taking the vaccine? And that is where the scam is. That is where the fraud is, that the public has been pandered and propagandized into thinking that they have comparable risks by getting COVID and the vaccine would protect them and protect others from those magnitude of risk. That has been a fake that the risks for the general population have been exceedingly low and not nearly the risks of of the adverse events of the vaccines. And so the fraud in this is not that vaccines good, not vaccines bad. The fraud is that people have been in denial of the specificity of the actual risks from COVID and how low they are for the overwhelming majority of the population And, and pushing for vaccination of those people, people who have natural immunity from having had COVID people for whom getting COVID is trivial, like almost all healthy children, and and so on. That is the fraud. That is the corruption.
1: What about the early treatments, though? Because... uh,
3: Sure, the early treatments would have substituted. Had early treatments not been suppressed in 2020, there would have been essentially no need for the vaccines at all. And of course, you can imagine the trillions of dollars there that would have been lost by the interests of the companies making the vaccines and therefore it was their economic job to their stockholders to suppress early treatment.
1: So we don't have a lot of time left. We've got about eight minutes left. Let me, let me ask Peter, first ask you and then Harvey, I want you to follow. What's your biggest fear going forward? What do you, what do you, what do you you think is another shoe that's going to drop Peter, that's going to, in the future, that's going to shock people?
3: I don't know if peter can hear me or not i think peter froze maybe i'll answer uh, Go go ahead harvey um my concern is that this whole paradigm of propagandizing the public with corrupt false messaging on the basis of plausibility and not science is going to expand like wildfire now we've spent two and a half years of fauci telling us i'm the science and he's had nothing scientific whatsoever he said i'm the plausibility put a mask in front of your face, it blocks things from going through. That's plausibility. There's no science there. The science is actually measuring the things that go through, doing the controlled experiments, testing to see whether the, the masks do anything. The masks don't do anything. There's 150 studies showing the masks don't do anything for this virus and similar viruses. The science is not plausibility. And what I'm afraid is that this propaganda tool of plausibility is going to be ramped up. It's going to be they're creating fears of climate change is the man-made climate change is the next big fear. We're all going to have to huddle in the dark with burning wood in our fireplaces because, uh, you know, uh, of cutting back on, on energy. The the whole idea that um, fertilizer is bad when food is actually made from fertilizer. You can't make food without fertilizer. That's where the ni- the nitrogen and, and the carbon dioxide comes that makes the plant cell walls of the food that we eat. And to think that you can't, that somehow you have to, not use fertilizer. These are absurd plausibility arguments and people are fools that, that we've gotten to a level of knowledge that people can be fooled about anything. And just having concerted media with, with nefarious aims doing all of this propaganda is ramping up the control of the population by fear. And uh, the, the corruption of our media is by far the biggest problem that, that has needed a solution for the past two and a half years, if not for much longer.
1: So Peter, the question I asked before we Mm -hmm. lost you, before you came back, what's looking ahead? What's your biggest fear?
2: My greatest fear is that the vaccine program is gonna drag out far too long. We're two years into this. This should have been shut down for safety within a month. Uh, Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths within 90 days of release of their vaccine. Our CDC VAERS system, which is a gross underreporting, was already out of bounds by January 22nd of 2021. There should have been a day safety monitoring board. It should have been done properly. It should have been shut down February 1st of 2021. My great fear is this is going to continue on, and more and more people will lose their lives or lose their jobs, have their lives interrupted for this, and, and will continue to mount injuries, disabilities, and deaths attributable to covid-19 vaccination i think there's no greater urgency than for our country to drop all mandates and pull the products off the market
1: where have where has uh, have countries stopped i think uh, denmark has is and, and how how many other countries are there
3: well there's 180 countries but uh, or plus or minus but uh, i think right. that you know the the question is mandates rather than products that the if, if people can be confused into taking something it, it's wrong but at least there's a uh, an informed potentially informed choice that each individual can make it's the, the mandating of these products that that is abhorrent and uh whether we pull the products off the the the, the shelves, as we probably should or at, at least stop forcing people and, and let people make more objective choices about them we can argue that point but i think that the, the that the mandates must end. The mandates are, are certainly abusive of our fundamental rights and and this is the big court push now that has that is, is been accelerating and will continue to.
1: And I wanna remind our audience that when we started the show in May on Sundays, uh, the Sunday before the WHO General Assembly opened, the WHO made it very clear on where they wanna go with this. They have put out the announcement that they wanna make, they want to have all 100% worldwide healthcare workers, that means you guys, take the shots. They want 100% worldwide, anybody with an underlying condition, no matter what age. They want 100% of everybody who's 60 years of age and older get the shots. So when we say, take a look at what Klaus is saying at Davos, we need to remind people to take a look at what the WHO is doing. We need to remind them that there are heads of states from Macron to Trudeau and other heads of states. And even, you know, Gavin Newsom. I mean, he he too is a, a Davos young leader graduate, the way that Macron and, and Trudeau and some other people are. Um, so th- we have people that are in place in positions of power. These elected officials, Harvey, you're talking about. Who are going along with this reset, they're also it that's in conjunction with the WHO, even though the CDC, some people may believe, are you know being a little bit more loose than they were a year ago on what they wanted because of masks. But the truth is, everybody needs to look at this in terms of it's in plain sight, it's not going away, unfortunately. And if people do not support gentlemen like you in your profession. This may be, you know, a retrograde. That's even worse. It's even worse. So, how do people find you guys? Give us, give us the uh, the site one more time, Harvey.
3: For the wellness program. The, the, the wellness company. You can. The wellness, Google, company. the wellness company. You can Google that, but it's at twc.health. And uh, easy to find.
1: All right. All right. The Next Wave Is Brave is the name of the book that's connected to the wellness company and that that is I understand it is number 2 on the USA today Wall Street Journal. Yep.
0: Congratulations
1: on that. So that's been out the hard copy is going to be coming out. Peter hold up your book again so that people can read that.
2: All right. So the this courage is Courage to Face COVID. Courage to Face COVID-19, uh, go to the website. Courage to FaceCOVID.com. Okay.
1: All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. I hope you'll come back. And when I read, read the books, I want, to come, want you to come back for, for the review of that. Okay. we we'll have a full discussion about what's in the book. Thank Great. you and God bless.
3: Thank Bye. you.